Last week, we ended our study in Acts with the Apostle Paul being marked for death by the Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem and being taken by the Christians in that city, uh, first to Caesarea, and then he was put on a ship for Tarsus and sent completely out of the area. And uh, upon his removal from Jerusalem, we read in verse 31 of Acts 6, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The peace that had come to, you know, it's bad when you uh, uh, bring peace to the city by your leaving, whether you're a, a persecutor of the church or a part of the church. But that's where Paul finds himself. The peace that had come to the city when Paul left for Damascus three years earlier as a, as a persecutor of the Christians had been shattered when he returned as a Christian debater, as a Christian preacher going to the Hellenistic Jews that had previously stoned Stephen with his approval. Anyway, when he returns... All of a sudden, the city is in an uproar once again. But now, as he leaves, peace returns not just in Jerusalem, but as Luke points out, in all Judea, in which Jerusalem was located, and Samaria, where Philip had been evangelizing the hated Samaritans, but also in Galilee. So this is all of what we know then as Israel. It was the northern kingdom. It was Galilee. And it was the southern kingdom. There's peace everywhere there. And it is basically the Israel that we know today of its borders. So peace was there and it was relatively safe for the Christian church. Now Peter wasted no time in visiting Christians throughout Israel, uh, healing and ministering throughout its length and breadth. He was going to cover the whole thing. Verse 32 says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, so he was, he was going to every village that he came across as he was walking through the countryside. He felt safe to go in and out among them. Now we are not told in scripture when all of these provinces became populated by Christians. We know about the church in Jerusalem, obviously, that came into being at Pentecost. Uh, earlier in Acts, we saw Philip, uh, Paul's persecution drive the Hellenistic Christians into the Judean countryside and into Samaria. And we saw Philip went there to preach and convert the Samaritans, at which he was very successful. And and Peter and John went up there also and uh, to check on his work up there and to preach in Samaria also. Galilee now was where Jesus and most of the apostles were from. The one exception was Judas, who was from Judea. Now, commentators I read, previously I have stated from up here that Galilee was a largely Christian area from the time before the resurrection. Now, I have some commentators pushing back on this for the section I studied here, saying that it is not clear 
although Galilee was a highly Gentile area at this time and at the time of Jesus, it's unclear how many Christians were actually there. So I'm just throwing that out to to make a clarification that we are not positive how Christian that area was. Nevertheless, we'll see Luke includes Galilee as one of these areas where the Apostle Peter is going to visit the Christians and preach among them. Verse 32b says, He came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now Lydda was located on the Mediterranean Sea. It was a fishing area. About 25 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So a day's walk. Maybe a little bit more than that from Jerusalem. Uh, And it says in verse 33, There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Now, we're not told some things about Aeneas. We do not know if he was a Christian. It does not say that he was a believer here. It just says that that Peter came upon him. Uh, John MacArthur points out that if he was a Christian, he's the only Christian in the entire New Testament who was healed of an illness. Every other one has been, in the New Testament, has been a non-believer. And it was used to bring glory to God and to bring them to Christ. However, all but one of the people in the New Testament who were brought back to life, and there are, uh, I believe, four of them. The only one that we don't know that was a Christian was the daughter of Jairus, Jairus's daughter. We do not, he was a leader of the synagogue. We do not know if his daughter or he were believers. And yet we do know that Jairus went to Jesus, believing that Jesus would, would, could, and would heal his daughter. So, with that caveat, we do not know if Aeneas was a believer. Also, right here it says, Aeneas is only called a man named Aeneas. Now, we have two healings that we're looking at today. The other one comes just a little bit after this. And when it comes to her healing... It says, and a disciple named Tabitha. So we have a couple clues here. No other Christians in the New Testament were healed of an illness. And he's called a man named Aeneas, and she's called a disciple named Tabitha. Just throwing that out, we still don't know, because it does not say definitively one way or the other, if Aeneas was a disciple. We only know that scripture does not call him one. Verse 34 says, And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And note what the apostle Peter did not say. He did not say, say, I heal you in the name of Jesus Christ. He takes no credit for it, and he uses Jesus Christ in in the immediate first person as the living person who heals Aeneas right at that point. What Peter actually said was, this moment Jesus heals you. Just just to be clear, 
Verse 34b says, he continues on, he says, this moment Jesus heals you, rise and make your bed. Now you know how much I love Greek and our our understanding of it. This phrase here is either (laughs) rise and make your bed or prepare a meal for yourself. Okay. And either one of those could be right. Because the word for bed here is also the word for a cushion that you recline on at table. And it could very well be make your bed or set the table. Get the table ready. And beyond that, then you look at how it's used in the rest of the New Testament. And you see when people are healed, Jesus has said, rise and take up your mat. And he has also said, rise and eat and take nourishment for your healing. So, once again, is it rise and make your bed or rise and set the table and eat? Don't know, okay? Because, and it doesn't really matter. Rise was the important part, right? It was, it was get up and join the living once again. So, we do not know which one of those two it was. Verse 34c says that Aeneas immediately arose. True biblical healings, unlike today's so-called faith healers, are immediate and complete. There is no halfway. There is no stand up out of your wheelchair and then sit back down and we roll you off the stage, which happens with faith healers. Okay? That does not happen when Jesus or the apostles, through Jesus, or Jesus through the apostles, heals someone. It's immediate. He says, go fix dinner. Or go make your pet. <laughs> One or the other, okay? It's immediate. There is no there is no halfway healing when God heals. When God heals, it is entirely complete. Verse 35 says, And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. And as we've seen in other passages, saying all the residents turn to the Lord was a common way of saying many turn to the Lord or a great number. It's a figure of speech that uh, all the world came to see Jesus. Well, all the world didn't come to see Jesus. A great many people in the area came to see him. Just as all of Lydda and Sharon turned to the Lord. No, but it was an amazing thing and many people did turn to the Lord. The Sharon referred to here was the plain of Sharon. The plain of Sharon was just north of Lydda. It ran up. Uh, Caesarea was the center of, of population and center of geographical importance to the plain of Sharon. So it was a maritime plain leading up. So when you see that all the people of Sharon also were talking Caesarea And just as when Jesus resurrected Lazarus, remember, when Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, people came from miles around to see Lazarus, to see this miracle. I mean, the first blue-eyed baby born in the San Fernando Valley was one of my great-great-great-aunts, okay? And 
because it was a Spanish area, an Indian area, there were Spanish friars at the San Fernando Mission. Because of this, they had never seen a baby with blue eyes, okay? And they came from as far as Santa Barbara. And that's a good journey from Santa Barbara to the San Fernando Valley on foot. They came from that far away to see a blue-eyed baby. Just think what you would do if somebody is healed that's been paralyzed forever, or if Jesus brought back Lazarus from the dead. They came from everywhere, because first of all, there wasn't a whole lot else to do, not for entertainment. But because it was such a startling thing that they came from miles around. That brings us to the second section of this passage. Another healing, but this time a healing, and we'll call it a healing, a healing from death. And that's a pretty good healing. And it says in verse 36a, Now there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. By the way, this is the only time the word disciple is used in connection with a woman in the New Testament. We know that women were disciples, but this is the one time a woman is singled out and called a disciple of Jesus. So, we first of all, we know she's a believer. Second of all, we think she was a fairly prominent believer because of this. Her name was Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. I like Tabitha best myself. Tabitha is the Hebrew word for her name. Dorcas is the Greek. They both mean gazelle. But gazelle means beloved. Uh, When you called somebody a gazelle in the Hebrew language, you were calling them a beloved person. And that is exactly what Tabitha was. Beloved. Because as verse 36b says, she was full of good works and acts of charity. And going on it says, in those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Now, you have to look, and when you see something like this, say, aha, this is different. We know that with Ananias and Sapphira, when they died, I mean, Sapphira wasn't even invited to the burial. They took Ananias out and put him in the ground immediately. And when Sapphira comes back, they say, look, eventually, there, there are the feet of the men who buried your husband coming to take you out as well. Because in Israel, you get people into the ground as quickly as you possibly can. But in this case, see what it says. It says, And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. So in those days, she became ill and died. Now in those days refers directly to the time that Peter was in the area. Joppa, today it's known as Jaffa, by the way, and I've seen that name, uh, but Joppa, J-O-P-P-A, is Jaffa, Israel, J-A-F-F-A. Same, same city, different spelling. I'll bet the pronunciation is the same, but I don't speak Hebrew. So, uh, But it was just 10 miles north of Lydda. What, a three-hour walk away? It is not very far. If she died in the morning... Peter could be there by noontime. So she was washed and placed in an upper room. She was not otherwise prepared for burial. Verse 38 says, Since Lydda was near Joppa, 
The disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without a delay. So here's the thing. The disciples, the Christians in Joppa, have a plan. Their beloved Tabitha has died. They wash her because that is what what you do with a body. They washed her immediately. But then dressed her and put her up in an upper room. Because they know that Peter, who has just done a spectacular healing three hours away, has been sent for. And they're hoping that what was done for Aeneas will be done for Tabitha, their beloved Tabitha, as well. And so verse 39 says, So Peter rose and went with them, and and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Widows in biblical times had a hard life, and that's what we saw with the discussion in the Jerusalem church. The the Hellenized, the Greek-speaking Christians said, hey, you're not taking care of our widows like you're taking care of the Hebrew widows. This is what the uproar was there that got Stephen appointed as one of the men, as one of the seven to take care of the widows. Widows had a terrible time, and widows without children were in really a world of hurt. There was nobody to take care of them. They had no husband to supply an income. They had no children to take care of them. And so, one of Tabitha's ministries was in making these widows clothing, tunics, robes, other kind of clothing. She had a talent, and apparently she had either money or was supplied cloth, but she made all of And they're standing here weeping and showing off the clothing they're wearing out of love for Tabitha. They're standing up in the upper room, grieving for her, wearing the clothes that she had made for them as a testimony to her selflessness. And these widows were in the upper room when Peter arrived. And verse 40 says, But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. The apostle Peter was acquainted personally with how Jesus performed resurrections. In Mark 5, 35 through 43, I mentioned earlier Jairus, the uh, leader of the synagogue, and his daughter. We see Jesus and his disciples arrive at Jairus' house, and it says, while he was still speaking, and he was speaking to Jairus before getting to the house, There came from the ruler's house someone, uh, some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, Peter, and James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, 
And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. I like that. They laughed at him. Because they knew dead people when they saw dead people. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, which means Peter and John and uh, James, the brother of uh, John, the brother of James, Peter and James and John, the brother of James. So he took them and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome, overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Okay, so we have our uh, taking nourishment. Get up and feed yourself or make your bed. Peter does what he had seen Jesus do before. Jesus said, Talitha come, kumi. And I, I want you to notice this. Peter says, Tabitha kumi. Only one letter changes from that, from Tabitha Kumi and Talitha Kumi. There's just an A to a a B to an L difference in what was said here. Uh, I find that amusing. It means absolutely nothing other than the fact that what was spoken was so close. So he says, Tabitha Kumi, uh, Tabitha arise, gazelle arise, beloved arise. And just as with Jairus' daughter, Tabitha opens her eyes and sits up. Verse 41 through 42 says, And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. The healing of Aeneas and the resurrection of Tabitha is spread throughout the region. Remember the people of biblical times were more familiar with disabilities because the beggars would be lying in the street. We've seen beggars healed before that were lame from their birth 40 years before. This man had been lame, paralyzed, not lame. It's not that his legs didn't support him, it's that he didn't work. They were familiar with this because the beggars would lie in the street to gather what little money they could get. And and as for a dead body, they knew one when they saw one. I said that about the, the Romans. The Romans were really good at making dead bodies, you know, when Jesus was resurrected. No, he didn't swoon. The Romans were really good at this, okay? Well, in the same way, these people knew a dead body when they saw one because they were the ones responsible for, for preparing them for burial. They did not take them to Pierce Brothers Mortuary down the street. They prepared the body. They were one, the one teaching, touching the cold body to wash and prepare them. They knew when somebody was dead. A miracle of, of curing paralysis would be a, a miracle just a little bit less than bringing someone back from the dead. And 
Peter has now done both miracles back to back, ten miles apart. The story spreads quickly in Lydda and Joppa and the plain of Sharon and up to the important city of Caesarea. And our story, our story, our section today ends with verse uh, 43. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. And next week we'll look at uh, more closely into the into that stay with Simon the Tanner and, and what it means for those considered unclean by the Jews. We're going to be seeing more of Peter. And we're going to be seeing a side of Peter that we haven't seen in Acts. He, he's not going to be the administrator of a church in here or an important apostle Uh, in the formation of the church, which he was. But it's pointed out that these next few few, uh, chapters show us Peter as an itinerant preacher, traveling the countryside, speaking to a few people at a time. And I want to say right here, I don't know it, but I'll bet that that was probably the most fun of his ministry. Running a church is one thing. And to a certain extent, it's a business. And and Robin can probably tell you more about that than I can. But the getting out and the preaching and the teaching and being among the people and and healing some when it comes to it, I'll bet that this was the times that he enjoyed the best. Gone was the bickering over favoritism for Hebrew widows over the Greek-speaking ones and gone was all of the the political intrigue that goes on in a large congregation. In a way, we're blessed. We have no political intrigue going on here at all that I know of. There is no disagreement that I've seen. There There is no bickering. There is no factions. There is no clique on one side or the other. It makes you wonder how Peter would give up this small personal ministry to become the bishop of Rome, the first pope of the church, as Catholics claim. But the question is, is is that who Peter was? Was he the leader of the Christian church? We know he was an important apostle. There's no doubt about that. But here's another question. Did he ever go to Rome? Okay? Because... If he never went to Rome, if he wasn't the Pope of the Church, and if he wasn't killed in Rome, then who exactly is buried in Peter's tomb? Okay? And we got there. And Robin's laughing, but we got there. Because we're going to finish up with that right now. The first thing to mention is, nowhere in Scripture does it say that Peter went to Rome. We have none of that. In um, 1 Peter 5.13, he's writing. And he says that he is writing from Babylon, okay? Which is sometimes identified with Rome because it was a terrible place, Babylon. However, half of his church in Jerusalem were made up of uh, 
Parthian Christians who came from Persia, who came from Babylon, okay? We don't know if he was referring to writing from Babylon means Rome or amongst the Parthian Christians. In other evidence, the Apostle Paul, you know, he mentions when he's been with Peter. He's mentioned it in a couple of his letters. It was a big deal when he met the other apostles, and he would name them by name when he saw them. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans in AD 57, and in Romans um, 15:20, he told them that he avenged areas that no Christian had ever been to before. Okay? Rome in 57 AD to the Apostle Paul was an unreached area of the world. So, apparently, Peter had not gotten there in 57. Paul also lived in Rome from 61 to 63 AD, and he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Philippians, the letter to the Colossians, and Philemon from that city. No mention was made of Peter being there, which one scholar said would be a glaring omission for Paul not to have mentioned that Peter was there in the city with him. You'll note that Paul names people who come and visit him in uh, Rome, who attend to him. He's not one shy to give credit, eternal, lasting biblical credit, or eternal lasting biblical shame to others he is one to mention these things no mention is made of Peter being there another commentator pointed out that Peter was a poorly educated fisherman and all what we know of him is that his sole language was Aramaic that it was odd that he would go to a town that speaks Greek and Latin Entirely and does not know Aramaic as part of his. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but he was an Aramaic speaking person. When we last see him in the Gospels, he's with the church in Jerusalem. When we last see him in Acts, he will be with the church in Jerusalem. Okay? So it's unclear if Peter was ever in Rome. So, but was he the head of the church? Was he the first pope, as Catholics like to say? The language Peter used of himself, he called himself an apostle, and that's an important thing. Um, And he called himself an apostle, and he called himself a servant of Christ. The servant of Christ. And that's about as lofty as he got in his descriptions of himself. He made no claim to the supremacy of himself over the other apostles, but he made made no claim to the supremacy of the apostles themselves. A site that I like to use, RBC Ministries, says this about Peter. But while Peter was central in the early spread of the gospel, part of the meaning behind Matthew 16, 18, and 19, the teaching of scripture taken in context, Nowhere declares that he was an authority over the other apostles or over the church. Nor is it ever taught in scripture that the bishop of Rome or any other bishop was to have primacy. 
However, Scripture shows that Peter's authority was shared by the other apostles in their Scripture references, and the Lucian binding authority attributed to him was likewise shared by the local churches, not just their church leaders. Also, nowhere does Scripture state that in order to keep the church from error, the authority of the apostles was passed on to those they ordained. Paul does not call on believers in various churches to receive Titus, Timothy, and other church leaders based on their authority as bishops or their having apostolic authority, but rather based upon their being fellow laborers with him. That's what the leaders of a Christian church are. They're fellow laborers with everyone else. So, so Peter may not have ever visited Rome. He had no more authority over the other apostles or church leaders than any other apostle or bishop. He was a fellow laborer of all Christians. So, on to the important question. Who is buried in Peter's tomb? Okay, we're back to that. See, St. Peter's Basilica, St. Peter's Cathedral is said to be built over the tomb of Peter. Uh, The original St. Peter's Basilica was built by Constantine about the year 400. Before that, around the year 200, Christian pilgrims started coming to Rome and just as they were going to the Holy Land and things like that to see these places, a tourism, a Christian tour, tourism industry had built up. And around 200, they started going to an area that they called Peter's Trompeum. Trompeum. But Trompeum does not mean tomb, okay? Peter's Trompeum is where Peter's Basilica is now built. And the word, as close as they can come, the word trumpian does not mean tomb, but Peter's trophy, or uh, Peter's memorial, or it was also called Peter's centitaph, which is an empty grave site. Okay? This is what... They are claiming as Peter's tomb, but the word itself does not mean tomb. It means an empty memorial. Who is buried in Peter's tomb? Nobody. There was an excavation by archaeologists in the 1950s. No bodies were found. No grave was found. There was nothing there. Peter is not buried in Peter's tomb. Maybe Ulysses S. Grant is. (laughs) But anyway, did Peter visit Rome? We don't know. Did he die there? We don't know. Is he buried somewhere in Rome? We don't know that either. Was he the first pope in Christendom? Ooh, I I got this one. No, he wasn't. Okay? He was Peter. He was Peter the Apostle. He was Peter the Servant of Christ. And that is plenty. And that is enough. You know, you know that I 
rely on tradition and secular teaching about any number of things. I do accept them. But a tradition that makes Peter the Pope, man's tradition, I do not buy. A theology is not built up over man's tradition, which is what has been done in the case of Peter. Peter was the apostle. Peter was a servant of Jesus Christ. And that is enough. Let's close in prayer.